Let's get back into the Psalms today. We probably will not finish the Psalms, but we might finish Psalm 119. I've been in it for several weeks, actually, but it's a very, very long chapter. And not only is it long, it's every verse about the way of God, the laws of God, His statutes, His instructions, or how life is regulated, how life ought to be lived. So spending some time here, I think, really is certainly worthwhile. There is a great deal of instruction here that is valuable to us about attitude, about our approach toward God, our approach toward one another. Uh, The psalmists uh, have really covered a lot of ground, and it's one of the more inspiring areas of the Bible that people go to a great deal, because there is not only instruction and chastening here, but there is also encouragement, there's inspiration, there's devotion, and a lot of the things that we really need. So let's pick it up in verse 145 where we left off. He says, I cried with my whole heart, hear me, O eternal, I will keep your statutes. Now we have rehearsed I don't know how many times how we are to be wholehearted, and I don't think that can be emphasized too much because It is said throughout the Bible over and over and over again, sometimes in almost these very words and sometimes in different ways. But God does not like Laodiceanism or slackness or uncaring or ho-hum or lukewarm. Those are things that he just simply cannot abide. And that's why we find ourselves as a church scattered and splintered and one trying to wake up and figure out what happened and why and what's next. This confusion in the church and the splintering and, and, and uh, splitting has been almost solely because of lukewarmness, because of not being wholehearted. Revelation 3 makes that very clear. I will spew you out if you're lukewarm. You cannot abide warmness. He loves heat. Cold is easier to deal with. You you can very quickly get rid of the cold. Warm, you have a tough decision, but it's not palatable. It's not right. He likes, when it comes to personality and spiritual readiness and attitude and so on, he wants us, in that sense, white hot. He wants us uh, to be completely into what we're doing. So he says, I cried with my whole heart and wanted God to hear, and we're in that same position. God has not been hearing nearly as much as I've seen him even in my limited lifetime and experience. I I used to see him answer more, uh, more pointedly, more frequently than I have in the last quarter century. Uh, When we were splintered, he didn't hear us as much. He didn't want to hear what we had to say. So now, he says, if we cry out with our whole heart, he will begin listening again. And now is not, by any means, a time to let off the gas spiritually, to become despondent or discouraged or frustrated or lukewarm all over again. Because things may not have happened as quickly as some of us might have wished them to, there is a tendency then to let up a little bit. And that is the absolute wrong thing to do. Um, You know, even in driving a car over the years, and I don't try this at home, but uh, I found over the years, if I was driving at a, oh, let's say a reasonable speed, Uh, and I started getting sleepy, if I slowed down, it just got worse. But if I'd put the pedal to the metal and speed up, I would wake up. That isn't always recommended in driving, but it's an example that I can remember times I'd stick my head out the window, and if if the wind about blew my jaw off, uh, I was beginning to wake up. So... It isn't time to let up if we're beginning to drift back off a little bit. It's time to put the pedal to the metal and see this thing through and finish it. Uh, You see it in sports where somebody gets a little complacent and suddenly somebody comes in up from behind and and beats them. 
Uh, there is no room for complacency whatsoever. <clears throat> so if in waiting we get a little tired, things aren't happening very much or as much as we'd like, happens to guards on duty, uh, nothing going on. You know, if there were cops and robbers running around and round around the place, you wouldn't go to sleep nearly as easy as if when there's nothing happening. And you're there by yourself, standing guard, but sleep can overtake you. And God uses those analogies. We, we simply cannot do that. And we need to be very awake and alert now because the climax of this age is upon us and things are going to start snapping and popping pretty quick. And we'd better not be asleep without oil in our lamps. So now is not the time to let up. And if you feel like you are a little bit, assess that and don't let it happen. We need renewed energy, not less energy. The, the finish of the race is getting nearer. That's when you need to have the strength and the power, not fade in the stretch. I cried to you, save me, and I shall keep your testimonies. So, you know, sometimes we cry out, we want God's help, we don't seem to get as close to Him as we would like to, and we don't get as many answers as we want to, and yet we have to keep renewing the conviction to keep his testimonies and live his ways in spite of the fact that things aren't the way we would like them. God knows exactly what he's doing, and his timing is impeccable. We're the ones who get tired or sleepy or uh, weary of well-doing or whatever might overtake us that causes us to slack up. Now is not the time. I prevented or in maybe more modern terms, I held back the dawning at the morning and cried. I hoped in your word. Now, sometimes in the night <clears throat> you might wake up and begin to think, and it's quiet, you have time. When the day gets started, you have to get up out of bed, and you have a thousand things you might think that have to be done this particular day, and all the pressures of everyday life come upon us, we don't have time to think and meditate. So he's saying, in my mind, in my attitude, I held back the coming up of the sun or the dawning of the morning and cried, I hoped in your word. He wanted time to think, time to meditate about life and its meaning and its purposes and to sort his uh, perspective out, to get his focus right, uh, many different things we might think about when we wake up in the night or early before things get going and we have time. And a lot of times, don't we feel that pressure? We need some time alone. We need some time out. We need some time to think, not just react, not just do all the time, but things need sorted out. And they may not be sometimes great big things. It's just that we might start having a little confusion about this, that, or the other thing in our lives, and, and we just want time to think about it. I think that's what's being expressed here. I, I held back the dawning and cried. He, he sort of uh, emphasizes that in the next verse. He says, My eyes held back the night watches that I might meditate in your word. <clears throat> Didn't want the night watches to end because it's quiet, nothing going on. And perhaps in the life of a king, uh, he had a whole backup of things that people were going to throw at him the next morning that had to be done or decisions made, and he just needed quiet time. We all need that. That's one of the biggest tools of Christianity, along with prayer, study, and fasting, is meditation, is to have time to think things through, to be sure our focus is right, uh, that we're pursuing the right things instead of wasting our time, uh, and this man who wrote this, probably David, felt that pressure. He needed time to sort things out, and he hoped in God's Word. So the basis of his meditation and his thought <clears throat> was how to get closer to God, how to get closer to His words, and that's what he tried to meditate on, were the statutes and the ways of God. Now, he was a ruler, and... People had to be ruled, they had to be guided in how they conducted life in the kingdom, and he knew God's way was the best. So he took time to think about God's ways and why 
God has this rule, that rule, or the other rule. Sometimes we do it just because we're told to. But it helps us if we can think through why is this wise? Why is this a good thing? Why will this turn out better than if I did some other alternate course? Uh, if you understand why you're doing something, it's much easier to do it. Not only that, it's, it's easier to accomplish it because you know what the desired result at the end is. Uh, there may be things that come up that you've not had specific instruction on. Well, how do I handle this? Well, if you know what the ultimate goal and purpose is, then you can think it through and come up with a good solution, whereas if you're just doing something by rote because I was told to do this, put this right here over and over, and you don't know why or what the finished product at the other end looks like, uh, then it's hard to get the job done properly and to handle contingencies that might come up. <clears throat> and we do that in life all the time. We ponder over decisions uh, in our lives, whether it be jobs or health or children or education or so many, many different things that we have decisions to make about. We need to think through in the light of God's ways. That's what he's talking about. Give me the night. Give me the opportunity to have time off that I can just think. Verse 49, Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, not according to my righteousness and my greatness, but because of your mercy and kindness, in spite of myself. Please hear me. O Eternal, quicken me according to your judgment. Help me, strengthen me, empower me, inspire me. Uh, give me what in your judgment is best for me. God knows what's best for all of us. We just simply don't. How many times have any one of us had a decision to make and uh, we're so torn in so many different directions? Do I do this? Do I do that? What will happen if I do this? And we may not know those answers. So sometimes it's hard to make a decision. So we put our lives in God's hands and say, please guide and lead my steps, put me in the right position at the right time to do what I need to do, when I need to do it, how I need to do it, according to his judgment, because I don't know how to direct my steps, you don't know yours, uh, except we come to God's word and come to him and ask him to guide and lead our steps and make sure they fit in according to his word. He gives his judgments right here in this book. Uh, so very, very often the answer is in a passage of Scripture that we may have forgotten about or uh, didn't quite understand or whatever. Uh, almost anything you are pondering, there's an answer in the Bible for. You just have to find it. It doesn't always come easy. Sometimes Scriptures come easily to mind. Sometimes they don't. Verse 150, they draw near that follow after mischief. They are far from your law. That's another reason he says to stay away from uh, angry people, from disobedient people, from worldly people. Uh, mischief is always nearby. And they're not close to, to God and to his law. So he says just stay away from that. Don't make friends with the world. Make your friends the Father, the Son, and your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where we get some help, some strength, some sharpening that we need. You are near, O Eternal, and all your commandments are truth. He's always there. He's always close. He just turned his face away, but he's always there, and he's ready when we turn to him. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. He's not going to change his laws you have people in this world and the governments that are changing laws every day. You've got to change it to this, change it to that, make it stronger here, get rid of it there, whatever. God's law is perfect. His way of life is perfect. It will never change because it's the best way. It's the way to peace, to happiness, to security, uh, and all those things that human beings would really like to have. 
he tried them, he tested them, uh, he is them. The only the reason they're codified for us is so we might not forget them, but he just simply lives them automatically, and we will be the same way. I can't imagine it, but if I automatically always thought correctly, automatically always wanted to do the right thing, um, <clears throat> what a different world this would be if we were all like that. <clears throat> that's the way God is, and that's the way he says we will be when we are changed. We'll no longer be selfish and greedy and foolish and carnal and proud and vain and all these things that drive human nature. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. So even in the midst of uh, a chapter here where God's law is rehearsed over and over and over and, and praised, uh, we still find ourselves afflicted. We still find ourselves with problems, and we still need delivered. We don't forget his law. We know his way is best, and yet we struggle with it, don't we, because we're still human, and we still have downward-pulling human nature. So even in the midst of recognizing God's way is right, we still have a struggle. Plead my cause and deliver me. Quicken me according to your word. Uh, it says in the New Testament that the Spirit groans for us with unspeakable uh, feelings and emotions for the whole earth, for us that are on it, uh, that it groans. Uh, God is frustrated by Satan's system and by what Satan has done to us. Now, he's going to fix it, but in the meantime, we have to live with it a little bit longer here. And it affects the whole earth. So we need him to quicken us according to his word and to bring the kingdom of God. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not your statutes. Salvation and God's law are tied together here in the same verse. Now there are those who will take you to a verse or two in Galatians and tell you you don't need the law. It's done away with. But the law is love. Following God's way uh, expresses love to God and love to mankind. He regulates how we treat one another. <clears throat> Let's see. Verse 157. No, wait, verse 50, 56, I guess it is there. Uh, great are your tender mercies, O Eternal. Quicken me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet do I not decline from your testimonies. You've got Satan and the spirit world. You've got the whole world and everything in it, basically, uh, are our persecutors and our enemies. They're all things that would pull us away from the things of God. So uh, we may not have too many immediate enemies right at the moment who are railing on us or after us, might have a few here and there, but not very many, and yet the whole system is against us, and we tend to try to buy into the system still too much instead of divorcing ourselves from it, and that is the source of a lot of our problems. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not your word. We can look at the whole world. And the whole world is comprised of transgressors, and it should grieve us. God so loved the whole world that he gave Christ his only begotten Son. It grieved him what he saw, and it grieved him in the days prior to Noah's flood what he saw, that their thoughts were evil continually. It grieved him when he saw Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we should not divorce ourselves from the needs of this world because it is that outgoing concern for our fellow man that should help us follow God's ways so that we might be there to help them as caregivers in the world tomorrow as their teachers, as their guides to lead them, to encourage them you know, I had to swim against the world I had to swim against Satan and Somehow, with God's mercy, I made it through, and now I'm a 
part of God's kingdom and part of the bride of Christ, I have the experience. Been there, done that. I know what you're going through. Here, this is the way to do it. Walk this way. Your life will be better. Uh, that's. We need to consider this whole world and how everything is polluted, upside down, sick, dying, uh, warring, and peace on earth does not exist, and it's about to get a whole lot worse as these new wars begin to break out. So let's not forget the world around us and realize it's not just personal salvation we're after here. We need God's kingdom here not only for us, but for all of mankind and all those friends and relatives and acquaintances and people you see walking on the street that cannot, will not, don't want to see or know God's way right now uh, are going to have to go through an awful lot of misery before they're humbled enough to listen. Hopefully we can humble ourselves enough to listen and learn and change now so that we can be there to help them. We can't help them now, and it's a frustrating feeling sometimes when you see somebody that's just their own worst enemy and just making a shambles of their life. You, you, you know people like that out in the world. The, their relationships are awful or don't exist, and, and they have terrible health problems, and just on and on and on, the things that are wrong with people in this world and the, the things that they face in daily life. Economic problems are getting stronger and stronger and more and more. We need the kingdom of God. Now, why does he say then in that example prayer, Thy kingdom come? That's almost the first thing he utters. Your kingdom come to this earth. We need it. The whole world needs it. So it's not just personal. We are here to learn, to serve, and to give uh, that's the drill we're going through, to learn to serve and give to each other so that we can be prepared to give to the whole world. And if we're faithful in the little with small numbers and help each other and strengthen each other and encourage one another instead of backbite and kill and distort and lie and dream up and imagine things about one another or whatever, we got to get rid of that negativity and encourage and strengthen one another like we're supposed to do in the millennium. We've read those scriptures, how you'll hear a teacher say from behind you, this is the way, walk you in it. <clears throat> where do you learn God's way? How do you know how to show them where to walk and what to do? Because we're learning it now, because we're experiencing it one with another. And that's one reason it's nice if you can have people that can live together because they can help one another and strengthen one another and learn not to deal with negativity but to learn to deal with the positive and make things better instead of worse. <clears throat> I know that there are quite a few out there who are trying to work things around. I, I hope we didn't take that as a condemnation in the sermon. It wasn't intended that way. Uh, if you're not there, there are people who are trying to work things around so they can get there and want to be there. But, yeah, I understand there can be negative comments once in a while. People get in a bad attitude or one event or whatever and may blow their bad attitude on somebody instead of on God. Uh, those things can happen, and it's unfortunate, but they need to be minimized and stopped. And, uh, you know, take it on yourself. If they start doing that, you stop them. Do not give them an ear. It's just so easy. We are so curious, and we want to know, and be in in the know, and we, we want to know all the bad things that might be going on. Maybe it makes us feel better ourselves if we're not quite as bad as somebody else is portrayed. I don't know. But human nature loves gossip. It loves negativity. And if we can find anything, a chink or a loose brick in the wall, we'll tug on it till we pull it out. And as I said last week, it's just as much the responsibility of the listener as it is the talker. If they don't have anybody to talk to and no one will listen to them, they'll shut up. Or they'll shut up and go away or something. But you don't 
speak negativity and talk down unless you have somebody to hear it. You know, you might mutter to yourself a little now and then, but you got to have an audience in order to, to talk. <clears throat> so if you're listening to it, you're just as bad as the one that's saying it because you're allowing it and you're accepting it. Uh, what does John say? He says, if they come and bring not this gospel... Do not allow them into your house. Now, our mind, we, each of us, are the temple of God. And when we allow gossip and negativity and backbiting and sin to be discussed in our presence and come into the temple of God, it's the same as defiling the temple by bringing in a pig and putting it on the altar. When you listen to that stuff, that is exactly what you're doing, is defiling the temple of God. When you say it, you're defiling whichever temple you're talking to about it. You're the one doing the defiling by speaking it, and their temple, their mind, picking it up. So don't look at it the way perhaps we traditionally do. Look at it as defiling the temple of God. And God does not take kindly to his temple being defiled. If you defile someone's attitude, you defile their mind by putting negative thoughts, thoughts of sin, rather than covering it, trying to exploit it or spread it, then you are defiling God's temple. Well, we need to be very, very careful about that. I've even heard now and then that there are people that uh, listen to Protestant preachers or even women Protestant preachers. Uh, have we not read what the Apostle John said? If they come and bring not this doctrine, this gospel, don't allow them in your house or bid them Godspeed. When you bring it in by radio or television or computer into your house, and it's Protestantism, I don't care how loving and sweet it may sound, uh, they are not preaching the truth of God. Uh, they are heathen uh, by what he says. They say the law is done away with, and I don't care how much grace and mercy and love they talk about, uh, they are denying God by denying his law. And that's what God love, God's love is, is his law. John makes that very, very clear. And women preachers are resoundingly condemned in the Bible. They're not to speak in the church. And if you bring them in on your television or radio, you are going against Almighty God. By allowing that in your house and allowing them to defile you with the disobedience that they're showing to God by speaking in the church in the first place. Well, you say, well, that's not in the church. That's just on the TV. Well, you are part of the church. And your body, your mind is the temple of the Spirit of God. And you're allowing paganism and false doctrine to come into your temple, uh, defiling the temple. So there, there are lots of ways that we need to think about that we could be defiling God's temple and not even realize it. Now, where was I here? Uh, Oh, I was grieved about the transgressors in 158 is where I went with that. Uh, verse 159, Consider how I love your precepts. Quicken me, O Eternal, according to your loving kindness. It's okay sometimes to mention to God uh, that we do love his ways, we do love his laws, and ask him to consider that. You know, I, I have my problems and I have my weaknesses and I'm still fighting myself, but... Consider that I do love your laws, and I'm trying to do what's right in spite of myself. And ask him to quicken us, strengthen us, empower us according to his love, which is boundless. Your word is true from the beginning, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Again, stating that this is a permanent way of life. We might as well get converted to it, because it is going to be here forevermore. Uh, we are trying to institute it a little bit in a very small group of people 
in the church of God, wherever that church may be, but it is going to go round the world. And this book, this Bible, is going to be the handbook for human uh, living. And it will, we will be there as teachers to be sure that it is enforced and followed. So if you're not in line with it, you're in trouble, because that's the way it's going to be throughout eternity. These words, it endures forever. Princes have persecuted me without a cause. False accusation can come very easily. <clears throat> of course, we're told if we're accused and it's true, uh, we have no gripe. If we are accused and it's not true, and we take that patiently, then that's acceptable to God. So there is no reason to rail back when we are accused of anything. Uh, Christ didn't. He didn't say a word. That doesn't mean that silence is acceptance of the accusation. It isn't. God just tells us, take it patiently, no matter what it is. But boy, our human nature and our pride and our vanity and our ego jump right up the minute we're accused of anything. We get so defensive so fast. And that proves right there that we're not meek enough yet because our pride, our vanity, and our ego come forth. We don't want to be corrected. We don't want to be chastised. We don't want anyone to tell us we did anything wrong or might even be thinking about doing anything wrong. <clears throat> we want uh, everything to be perfect. We don't want anyone to dislike us or think badly of us. And boy, we'll do everything we can to be sure that our reputation is not tarnished. That's our pride, our ego, and our vanity. And Christ was completely without that. And every accusation that was made against him was false. And yet he never answered a word back. He was very, very careful not to allow his pride and vanity to get in his way. But ego is such a big part of human nature. But my heart stands in awe of your word. So... We can be persecuted, even without cause, but we quietly stand in awe of the Word of God. And the part of that awe is that incredible instruction that even if we're accused falsely, to take it patiently. That is one of the hardest things for a human being to do. Uh, it's hard enough to take true accusation, but false accusation... <laughs> It's rare indeed the person who can accept that and take it patiently and not come to his defense. But we need to learn to do that. Like Nelson said, we have a chance to learn to be meek. <clears throat> but boy, let somebody rattle your cage just a little bit and see how loud you get in defending and going around telling other people about how you were done wrong to use bad English but get a point across. I rejoice at your word as one that finds great spoil. Well, if you found a buried treasure, uh, boy, would you ever rejoice. Some kind of something that you didn't expect, there it was. Uh, we should look at his word that way, because what a treasure it is. In a world gone mad, in a world gone insane, in a world when people don't know how to conduct marriages, don't know how to rear children, don't know what to eat, when to eat, what to eat, where, uh, they don't know how to run business with honesty and integrity, politics is full of fraud and corruption and, and lying and cheating and stealing, and on and on it goes. Uh, what a treasure it is to have God's law, to have His ways laid out for us to prevent the problems that this world is facing. Yeah, you look at the bright lights and all the so-called fun out there, but I'll tell you what, people dying of drug overdoses and dying in car accidents with drunk drivers and uh, homicides and all kinds of things because of broken relationships aren't a pretty, aren't a pretty picture. Divorce isn't pretty. Uh, children being jerked back and forth between parents isn't pretty. There's just an awful lot of stuff out there that, yeah, there's the glitz and the glamour, but what about war? What about people having their body parts blown off them? Uh, rejoice at the Word of God, which produces peace. I hate and ab 
or lying, <clears throat> but your law do I love. How many people on this earth, I'd say every one at one time or another, <coughs> has lied to hide behavior, to hide their sin, whatever. Uh, well, we ought to hate and abhor lying because we need to fix whatever it is we've been doing wrong that we have to lie about or we lie to get advantage or whatever. But God's law, where we love him with all, all our heart and we love our neighbor as we love ourselves and we treat them according to God's law, then what is there to lie about? Because you're always doing good to someone, never doing wrong, never defrauding, never hurting, always helping. So what purpose is a lie unless you're trying to hide something? Well, we need to get to the point we don't have anything to hide, and then we won't even want to lie. Seven times a day do I praise you because of your righteous judgments. He says in another place he cried out to God at morning, evening, uh, morning, noon, and night. Daniel went to pray before his open window three times in a day. Uh, we're in told who, and I think Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Uh, so we're to be in an attitude or of uh, an attitude of communication with God at all times, His ways, and, and all about Him. Uh, so there are various indications in the Bible of how often to pray. Uh, here's just another one to add to it. Seven times a day do I praise you because of your righteous judgments. I don't think prayer should be rote by any means. Perhaps you need to schedule it so that it actually happens but you don't live according to the schedule. Otherwise, it just simply becomes something you do out of habit that has no meaning anymore. So there are many times during a day that we can send up a little prayer. Don't always have time for a big one. But consistently uh, be ready to pray. And think about doing things the way God would do it, uh, even physical things. Well, that's just physical, people will say. Well, no, it's not just physical. God judges us spiritually by the way we handle physical things. He's made us physical. We are physical. People say, well, get off my back about food or about diet or about this or about that. It's just a physical thing. No, our body is the temple of the Spirit of God, and he commands us to take care of that temple, uh, to treat it properly. And if we misuse and abuse our bodies, which are the temple of God, with physical things, then he's judging us constantly by the way we handle physical things. Uh, money, is it our God? Do we use it rightly? Do we use it wisely? Do we help others with it or take care of ourselves only? It's Yeah, it's just a physical thing. Well, what do you, that's my private business there about money. Well, God regulates money. He has a tithing system. He has an offering system. He has uh, a lot of instruction about how you work and the ethics, and even if you work. He says if you don't work, you don't eat. That would solve a lot of these problems where there are people sitting around uh, and other people are feeding them and they're not working them and they're ruining their health uh, because of how they're being fed. Well, they don't work. Cut the food off. God says that. That sounds harsh. Is that love? What do you mean? Yeah, that's love. If you're letting them sit there and become 800 pounds of blubbering human flesh, uh, it's love to cut the enablement off. It's love to say, I'm not going to give you that stuff anymore. It's killing you. You're committing slow suicide, and I'm aiding and abetting it. I'm assisting you in killing yourself. That's not love. That's human emotion. Well, I'm hungry. Well, all right, have three more buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken then. Uh, no, that's enablement, and that is not love. That is hatred. That is murder. To give people that which they do not need, uh, and, I, you know, food immediately came to mind. It can be anything in life that's detrimental to us and how we handle it. No, it's not just a physical thing. We are physical, and we are judged eternally by how we deal with other physical people. Are we not? 
I will judge you just like you judge your brother. I will show the same amount of mercy to you you show your brother. I'll give you the same amount of forgiveness you give your brother. You mean God's eternal judgment is going to be based on how we treat another human being on this earth? Not our relationship with, oh, dear Lord. With God? Yeah, he says your relationship by with me is reflected by how you treat each other. And if you're mean and nasty and unmerciful and unforgiving to others, God is going to be mean and nasty and unforgiving and loving to you, and he's going to throw you in the lake of fire for it. So we are physical, and we cannot separate the physical from the spiritual. God does not allow that. Great peace have they which love your law, and nothing shall offend them. That was read to us in the sermonette, and... Uh, fits very well in the, the line of thought that these other verses are bringing to mind. Uh, if we love his law and keep his law, we will live in peace and have peace. And if you have that kind of love for the law of God, nothing will offend you. And we often say, well, so-and-so is giving offense, and you shouldn't offend anybody. You're acting in a way that offends. Well, and we're being offended by it. It is wrong to offend. It is also just as wrong to take offense. It's real easy to accuse somebody else of offending you, but if you took offense, you're breaking the rule yourself. So uh, we need to be aware of both sides of this coin. You should never get offended no matter what anybody says or does to you. Christ had unbelievable things done to him and never took offense. After they had done everything to him that you could possibly think of to do to someone, both mentally, emotionally, and physically, he said, forgive them, Father. They don't really understand what they're doing. What an incredible meekness and love that he had for all mankind. And it wasn't just church people that were doing this to him. It was the world. And he took it absolutely patiently and did not get offended. If we're to be like Christ, we are not to take offense no matter what anybody says or does to us. And we take offense so easily. We wear our feelings right out on our sleeves, right on our shoulders, chip on our shoulder, dare anybody to knock it off. You say anything bad to me, and buddy, I'll be all over you. Or you do anything contrary to what I wanted done, and I'm going to be offended. Now, we don't think we're offended. See, we say that we are having righteous anger. That's the way we look at it. Somebody else would say, no, you're taking offense. You've got too much pride and ego, and you've got a chip on your shoulder. And we'd say, no. They really did it, so my anger is justified. I have righteous judgment. No, you're self-righteous, and you're proud and full of ego and vanity and selfishness is the reason you're offended. If you were meek, then you would not say that. Righteous anger is very, very rare. And Christ did not get angry no matter what they did to him. So we have a lot of room to grow here. Uh, and taking offense to those who did offend us, did do something wrong to us, and we rise up in our vanity and self-righteousness, you're no better than they are. None of us are. None of us are any better than anyone else. Every one of us make mistakes. Uh, why do I have to take offense at somebody else who does something wrong, I think, toward me, when I might turn around and do something just as wrong to somebody else. I might do the same thing to someone else that was just done to me that I got so angry about. You know, uh, be very, very slow to consider your anger righteous anger. It is very, very rare. Most of the time, it's wounded ego, pride, and vanity and taking offense when nothing should offend us. 
Yeah, there's some correction here. There's a lot of correction in God's Word, but it affects every last one of us, and every one of us does it. And we feel justified at getting so upset, and then we'll tell others about it. And all we do is create war instead of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the warmongers and rumors of war. Peacemakers, those who take a situation that is getting out of hand and actually make peace. And sometimes we take Matthew 18 and say, I'm going to go make peace. No, you just make things worse by climbing all over somebody. We're supposed to go there hat in hand in meekness and love and kindness and try to gain our brother, but most 99% of the time, I think even in the church, it's been done wrong. We go there and use Matthew 18 as a club to subjugate them and make them see their error and how they better straighten out because they offended us or they did us wrong in some way. And boy, are we on our high horse and ready to straighten them out. And if they don't listen to me, I'm going to get somebody else in here and I'll get witnesses and I'll bring the church and, buddy, you will straighten out. Totally, absolutely, upside-down, wrong, unchristian approach and attitude to Matthew 18. It's there to, in love, kindness, mercy, <clears throat> help someone where they may have done something against us. They might really have. But if we react and use that as a club, that's an act of war. That is not an act of making peace. Peace is made when we can come and in kindness and love and meekness talk things out and resolve the problem and become better friends, not go away with both angered and worse off than when we invoked Matthew 18. Don't let anything offend you. Make a mental note of that. Make a physical note of that if you want. But we are not to be offended by anything. And every last one of us uh, has some growth to do in that. Lord, I have hoped for your salvation and done your commandments. We've been living them. We've hoped for salvation. We've been following his commandments, not perfectly, but we've been working that direction, and that's what he's interested in. My soul has kept your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept your precepts and, all, and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. He sees it all. He knows. and We can't lie to him and say, well, I've kept your law when we haven't. Uh, we can work at it. And yes, we'll fail and we'll make mistakes. And then we ask his forgiveness. But we can point at our record, you know. I've been in the church maybe 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever. I've been keeping your Sabbath and your holy days. I've been trying to do everything I'm supposed to do. I'm trying to change my attitude toward people and attitude toward you. And uh, Father, you know, I'm not perfect, but I do have a record here where I've been doing this. Please have mercy and kindness and, and help me do better. So it's not wrong to recognize that, yes, I have kept your testimonies and followed your precepts. However, imperfectly, and yet that's been my goal and my purpose, and please recognize it. Because no one other than Christ could ever come and say, I never offended, I never did wrong, I never broke your commandments. Uh, he's the only one. So ours always has to be tempered with a plea for mercy and forgiveness and his loving kindness in judgment. Uh, let my cry come near before you, O Eternal. Give me understanding according to your word. Chapter, uh, verse 169. I want my prayer to be heard. Not just sort of go to the ceiling and stop, but to be heard by God in heaven. Uh, and to have his understanding and mercy and kindness delivered to us according to his word. Because he does say, I'll understand. I understand. I know you're but dust. I know your frame. Uh, my son went down there and lived it for three, 33 and a half years, and, and he knows what you're going through. And he does say he'll save us from ourselves. So deliver us according to his word. He says, if you'll serve me, I will save you. My lips shall utter praise when you have taught me your statutes. 
It'll be a thankful thing. The more we learn about God's way, the more thankful we ought to be, and the more we should praise Him for what we do understand and know. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. His commandments are love. He says, this is the love of God, that you keep the commandments. So God's love is defined by commandment-keeping. That's what it is. It is that and nothing more, nothing less. His commandments are also the right way or righteousness. Uh, How can you say the commandments of God are done away when they define how you treat God and how you treat your neighbor and learn to have peace and love and harmony? That's it's just the way that works. Let your hand help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I've made this commitment. I'm working at this. Please cause your hand to help me. I can't do it on my own. I need you. That's why we have to turn to God, because we cannot keep the commandments on our own. It is absolutely impossible. We are so selfish and so deceitful by nature and so proud and so vain that we cannot treat people the way Christ would treat people, and we can't treat God the way he wants to be treated without his help. You can't even understand his way except the Spirit of the Father draw you. So let's not for a moment think we can get along without God. We need time to pray, to study, to fast, to hold back the night watches and think about our lives and where they're headed and why they're headed that way. I have longed for your salvation, O Eternal, and your law is my delight. So salvation and the law, again, are paired together here. You can't separate salvation from the law of God. Yes, we need mercy, we need grace, unmerited pardon, where we've broken the law, but he says... It is by works that, and how we keep the law that he will judge us. Well, the law is made to look so bad, and yet Paul said it's holy and just and good. And he says, I'll judge you by your relationship with the people around you. Well, his law regulates how we treat the people around us. It is the law of love. You don't lie to them, you don't cheat, you don't steal, you don't break his laws. You treat people with honor, love, and respect. So, if you do that, then he says you will have salvation. But if you misuse and abuse people around you, that is, break the law, then you won't have salvation. Uh, Verse 175, Let my soul live, and it shall praise you, and let your judgments help me. So, think about the judgments God has made in the past where people were righteous or where people were wicked and evil and the kind of judgments that he made so that we might think about those and avoid the pitfalls that cause problems to others and do the things that brought blessing. And if we live, then it gives us opportunity to praise God. Uh, Living dog is better than dead lion, Solomon said. So, as long as we live, we have opportunity and breath to praise God and look to Him and look to His salvation. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. So, all these 176 verses, that every one of them mentioning the truth, the testimony, the law, the way of God, and uh, His devotion to it, and in the very last one, after all these things that have been said, He said, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. I knew all this. I've written all these verses about your law, and I love it, and I'm committed to it, and yet I'm still human, and I go astray, and I make mistakes, and I say the wrong things, and think the wrong things. Um, That's human. Like Paul, who had been an apostle for many years, saying the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. And who will save me from this body of sin and death? And then he said, only Christ can do so. So no matter how hard we try and how much we do love God's way and are committed to his way of life, it is still human to go astray like a lost sheep. Uh, Seek your servant. 
he asked God to seek him. Now, that reminds me of the sermon that I heard, oh, I don't know, ten years ago, I guess, where uh, I'd never thought about it, but the disciples were all in the boat, and the storm was there, and they were afraid they were going to die, and Christ came walking by, and he was going to walk right on by the boat. He wasn't afraid. Uh, he, he could walk to shore, the other shore where he was headed. They were the ones that were rowing and fearful and scared, and uh, he was going to walk right on by. And they says, no, come to us. Please come to us. And when they asked, he did. So we need to ask God. Yes, we need to turn to him and go seek him, but we also need to ask him to seek us, not to bypass us, but to have mercy and compassion and love and forgiveness and encouragement and strengthening and inspiration to us. So I had never really focused on that particular thought in this particular verse, but seek your servant. Inviting God into our lives, in other words, inviting him to help, inviting him to be there with us wherever we go and whatever we do. That's a very important concept. Not only do we seek him, but ask him to seek us. For I do not forget your commandments. And the strength of being able to say, God, come to me, seek me out, help me, how, how do we ask that? Well, we ask that by also saying, I don't forget your commandments. I, I've been a lost sheep. I haven't been everything you want me to be. I'm working at it. I'm trying. I fail. Uh, please seek me out and help me. I'm like a lost sheep that needs to be found. And that's the context here. Uh, I, I make mistakes all the time. Sheep get lost very, very easily. Sheep are basically kind of stupid. Uh, they... They get in trouble so very, very easily if you've been around them or herded sheep or whatever. They're like turkeys. If there's a way to die, they'll find it. Uh, you know, I always said a turkey is really, really a brave bird. He'll try going underwater. If he, <laughs> he'll try anything. <laughs> he'll kill himself any way he can find to do it. No, they're not brave, they're stupid, but uh, but human beings are that way. We we very stupidly put ourselves in danger and, and do all kinds of wrong things and wrong kind of thinking and so on. It, uh, we, we are like sheep in that sense. Yeah, we're to be meek and humble like a sheep and obedient, and yet we're not to be stupid like a sheep. We're to be very aware of the pitfalls in life and how we can so easily destroy ourselves and uh, know that God's way and God's commandments keep us from doing that. So even though we go astray and become lost sheep, we need him to find us, clean us up, help us, encourage us and strengthen us, and not forget his commandments because he does look to those who serve and obey him. Uh, he, he has a special favor for them. He will look after them. He will take care of them. So... Let's recognize uh, our weaknesses, our faults, uh, how we get ourselves in trouble, and then ask him to search us out, seek us out, find us and help us and bring us back into the fold and into his good graces. And we can do the same one with another. You know, a flock of sheep do tend to get together and help protect each other by getting in a flock and, and uh, getting away from trouble together. Uh, we need to... Uh, to have some of the instincts of sheep, and yet we don't have to be stupid either. We, we can become educated sheep and follow our Savior because he is the chief shepherd, and where he leads, we must follow. So if he tells us do this or tells us do that, we need to find a way to get it done, whatever it might be. Well, I think I'm going to quit there today. We finished up Psalm 119. Been a goal of mine now for several weeks, but uh, we're stopping a little early, and that's okay. I might hold you again longer some other time. So 
I look to be back in Anatoth next week, God willing, and everything works out to be there for Sabbath. But uh, everybody have a good week and uh, draw closer to God. Put the pedal to the metal because uh, it is getting closer and we need to be as close to God as we can for the troubles and trials and tribulations that are coming. And it would be a true shame to wake up when the cry at midnight comes and not have oil in our lamps. So, you know, sometimes it's a long time till midnight, and it seems like a long wait, but let's be sure we're prepared and ready when the time comes. So we'll stop there for today.